North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Koontz, what's your favorite album? <laughs> That's a horrible question. Um, I don't really have one. <laughs> I just listened to a complete album called, I think, Florida Stories by this guy that does bluegrass. And it's about Florida history. I listened to the whole thing yesterday and enjoyed it. But see, I can't even remember what the album's called. So t- it's about Florida history. So as yes. bluegrass, this is going to be about like... What? Backtown, the real deal, what happened before the man came and ruined Florida? Yeah, because Florida sort of is still, but definitely used to be a southern state. Yeah, right. Now it's just sort of a retirement state. I don't even know what to make of it. (laughs) Cuban. Especially South Florida. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like several states now, which a lot of states are. I mean, Illinois is like that. Illinois is kind of the the south when you get farther south. Florida is just paradoxical because the farther north you go, the more you're in the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Illinois is like the East Coast in the Midwest, and then it's merged with Appalachia. It's, it's a really weird, weird mix of yeah. things. 
So, well, that's not really a great opener, but it, it, the, it was an attempt to talk about mass-produced culture and media and how media impacts the way we think. I saw something recently, uh, and I, who knows how real these headlines are, but it was sort of like without standard media, all of America would be to the right, effectively 15 points in any given election or, or debate, you know? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So no, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question for, you know, most people. It's just... I, I it, I'm the one that makes that question horrible because I don't have sufficient exposure to lots of normal things in their normal formats. So, uh, but I think that that one's way of consuming media, which is read as equivalent to the word culture. So we're going to be talking today, but also you know a, a couple of weeks after this about this concept of culture. What is culture? How do people? Produce culture or produce it well, especially. How can we produce culture? But culture and media, especially entertainment media, are kind of understood as equivalent terms. They really shouldn't be. They're not, but they are. And so if you fail to consume the right kind of media or sufficient quantities of the right kind of media, then you will end up often, <laughs> I think, you know, yeah, who knows what headlines are real, but the one that you just said sounds kind of right. You know, if you weren't watching things that asserted that, for instance, women are physically stronger than men, you might end up believing a little bit more about reality. Is the merging of the idea of entertainment and media something we really want to push back at? I mean, is there a place for media that is not entertainment? Are we media? Yeah, but we're entertaining. I'm entertaining. <laughs> yeah, you're entertaining. I'm not entertaining. Um, I, think, I, I think that entertainment plus entertainment as media is really the case also with journalism. That is that what is called journalism is often intended to achieve some concrete political purpose, which I don't think is actually distinct from the Marvel cinematic universe or whatever it is, comic universe. I don't even know what it stands for, but that there really isn't that much of a distinction between someone writing something in 1898, trying to get us into a war with Spain and someone producing, you know, a comic book movie that is going to just assume that, you know, this strong uh, female lead is real and these things could happen and are plausible and aren't, you know, totally absurd and weird. So I think that I don't I don't really see much of a distinction between media and entertainment, but I also don't see much of a distinction except maybe in format between different kinds of mass media, whether they are purportedly for the purposes of entertainment and our show business, or on the other hand, whether they are supposed to be serious news organizations. I mean, how much of this is a matter of just the opium of the masses? Uh, here we are with what the um, gladiators fighting each other just to keep us distracted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea of that the masses need opium it was not, I think, a unique insight of Karl Marx's. I think that Marx comes at uh, the beginning of a certain thing that has plausibility because of people's recognition that in cities, people behave in new ways. And if everywhere begins to urbanize in at least Western Europe rapidly in the 19th century, and remember Marx is writing most things that he's writing from England, which is the most rapidly industrializing country in the world at that time, then you're, you're recognizing that something new and, and maybe even someone new is coming out of this new experience of life in extreme close quarters. But I think also, crucially, it's someone who therefore does not have his own culture, such as we might traditionally identify. So for instance, he doesn't have songs. 
He doesn't have, you know, a calendar that is followed locally. His songs, his habits, his reading, his listening, even his social acquaintances are much more subject to change and fluid because he is living more and more and more among strangers, urban man. And in the 19th century, America isn't quite there yet. We're not majority urban until the 1920 census, as far as we know. But the phenomenon is there in New York and Chicago, you know, even before we are a majority urban place that it's it's an urban or, or let's say an urbanized, or we could even say suburbanized man who is really the target of mass produced entertainment of mass produced media. The idea of moving to the city, I think, is to leave behind whatever all those other things are. The, the goal is to lose yourself and become something other than you are. Yeah. The idea of mass producing also, in my mind, it, it hits right in line with making money on what you do. First, it takes money to mass produce. And then yeah, the reason you right. would invest that is for some kind of return. And then that gets us to having it need to have a concrete political purpose who would have the money to invest to try to get a return unless it were also going to be used to to move people in some way at the very least toward that that financial return right yeah and i i think that when you begin to start thinking of culture as something that doesn't necessarily have really anything to do with money you begin to see how there could be a distinction between a people's culture, that is their songs, their poems, their calendar, things like that. It doesn't have to be specifically religious even. It could be that, you know, like April is three milk month in Old English because that's when you can milk the cows three times, reportedly, says the venerable bead. So those kinds of patterns and habits are the things that urbanization naturally breaks up. Then... I don't become someone with, you know, no culture, but I become someone who starts using the word background, for example, for my culture, or someone that has always thought, in the case of most of us listening to this, always thought of those things as background, not so much who I am and where I live, but where I grew up, which is always distinct from where I live, and then who I could be, which is distinct from who I was and who I am. And so, you're, you're ripe at that point to have things sold to you, not necessarily at exorbitant cost, but to have things sold to you. And there are forms of culture that precede what we're going to talk about today, which is the movies that are themselves the first, let's say, off-scourings or maybe the first fruits, depending on how you look at it, of mass culture, which is necessarily a city culture uh, by city people, probably for city people, but also for people who aspire to be city people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trying to be something other than they were and thereby right. particularly uh, attracted to novelty simply yeah. because it is not what was. And then right. that gets you to the, the dime store novel. Look at that. Yeah. The dime store novel. And think about the word novel, which is originally used in its kind of origin romance languages for what we call in English, the news, which as a thing that you can consume in, in printed form is also a result of urbanization. That is the news as well as novels, especially dime novels, are things that you would really only be able to get your hands on because they were printed and distributed in and around cities. When that starts to be the exception, so this is a, an interesting thing 
Uh, they don't necessarily need American news in 19th century Europe, but we do begin to have translations into uh, other European languages of dime novels, which you can find a bunch of examples of these online and read them for yourselves. They are kind of maybe the way we would think of airport paperbacks. They're really cheap. They're cheaply produced. They usually have paper covers and they will have maybe hopefully edifying stories for the young. They're also the places like in the mysteries of London volumes one and two have the closest thing that you get to salacious or outrageously violent. What we would now think of as maybe R rated movies. You're going to find those also in these dime novels and they are not uniquely American, but American, they are the first time that Americans really begin to export our own <laughs> people won't like this word literature, right? <laughs> Our mass culture, because otherwise people now famous that maybe you read, if you took an American literature class like Hawthorne or Melville are largely not read outside the United States. And some of them, especially Melville barely read in the United States uh, in and after their lifetimes. So what people know of America is largely derived from mass culture products, especially in the 19th century novels, because the 19th century is preeminently a reading century. It's a century of text. And there are going to be people in Europe who are going to want to come to America based on dime novels about uh, baseball players at Yale and uh, famous engineers and cowboys shooting Indians, very, we'll say stereotypically American subjects. Yeah. And Pulp Fiction before Pulp Fiction was Pulp Fiction. Yes. Yeah. So the dime novel is, it might be the grandfather of film as we'll talk about, but it is the father of Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction is really the pulps because of the quality of the paper on which they're printed. Pulp Fiction, detective stories, ghost stories, sci-fi. Those are all things that in the 20th century, that maybe the first half, let's say, are going to be enormous. Also the world over and pioneered by Americans. And notice that the, what we're talking about here hasn't largely been content. It's form. It's cheap stuff you can sell to people and ideas that can be cheaply gotten because they're repeated and they're, they're clear. There's a clear hero. There's a clear bad guy. And the exceptions to that are going to be predictable exceptions, such as in certain pulp fiction in the 20th century, you can have an ambiguous figure if it is a detective story. <laughs> but it's all going to be things that you know. And so I think that one thing to notice about mass culture, even before uh, the form that it takes that I think is just absolutely revolutionary, which is film, is that mass culture is simple culture because it brings together people who really have nothing in common except that they bought it. So it's good culture for the casino. You know, it's the kind of shrimp that you get in the casino. They're big. It's not necessarily fresh. The casino might be somewhere in Illinois or Kansas, far from the sea, but it's, it's, it's everybody else is getting that. And if you paid enough to get in, you get to eat the shrimp too. So you always have clear, simple plot lines. And that's actually a carryover from uh, some of the, you know, mass produced forms of news where they would largely be stories about murders and executions. People don't want to read complex stories about how a person got his life together over the course of 12 years. They want to read about blood and sex and murder. And that is pretty standard uh, as long as we've had these kinds of things printed. I think 
usually though with clear good and bad, right? Like there's there is a good guy and then a bad guy, and then the bad guy gets it in some way. Yeah, even that's if right. that you know what that means changes, it's still yeah, that's pretty right. standard. That's right. Yeah, and and even when in the case of certain you know like uh, tr- what we would now call true crime broadsheets, these are big pieces of paper that we put up, kind of placard style. But also in successors to them, detective stories, dime novels about uh, cowboys and Indians that Europeans would read. Those are things that, yeah, there's a clear good and there's a clear bad. You might be taken in by the bad guy and a lot of time may be given to him. And in the case of stories of executions, it's really all about the bad guy and how the bad guy suffered. So it's kind of in that way, it resembles a lot of horror films, not so much from today, but from maybe 30 years ago, where, uh, yeah, it's kind of gross and transgressive, but it's also always about how someone who like had sex before marriage is going to be killed brutally by someone at a lake. These forms of entertainment are similar. They're very clear. They're, They're some of them very gross. That's not actually new in the 20th century or new once we get a rating system. But yeah, there's clear good and bad. And that that is important to say, because I think the shift toward universal grayness is is notable today. So you say film is revolutionary. I think that's probably an understatement. The the, the medium itself is um, magical. You know, it, it, it's stunning. It, it changes everything sure. about the perception of reality. And uh, the history of that, I don't know. And we're going to talk about the history of Hollywood, but I don't know if you're prepared or able to talk about you know, how yeah. many years is film available as a storytelling medium. I'm talking about moving, yeah. moving pictures, whether it's silent or not. Um, and then uh, from there, jumping into how it really became an intentional plan of some kind uh, sure. in California. Yeah, so this has to do with the roughly two decades in which you have the reign of what Neil Gabler in his book, An Empire of Their Own, calls the reign of the technicians, or he he makes it an ethnic conflict, actually, which is something that we'll discuss. The reign of the wasps, right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, because you're, you're successful melding of technology with desire to record uh, is made in and around Thomas Edison's workshop, hmm. uh, which will come together as uh, a series of production and technical companies called the Trust informally in the early 20th century. And Adolf Zucker, who's one of the founding fathers, Jewish of of Hollywood, will say that you know they saw it as a technical medium, something to record. Right. So a lot of early film are simply recordings of events, right? Teddy Roosevelt talking, a mother holding a baby, life in a street in Berlin for, you know, 75 seconds in 1903. The the change that comes and the origin, not only of Hollywood, but of other commercial forms, although especially of Hollywood, is that Zucker says that he and his ilk, whom Gabler, uh, who is himself Jewish, sees as a Jewish phenomenon, and there are immigrant reasons for that as well. Uh, Zucker says, we saw it as a show business. That is, beginning about 10 years before uh, the First World War kicks off, there are people, especially in the New York area, who understand that this could be something bigger than it is, because the prehistory here is that you have visual media for mass consumption. 
prior to film. Those are things that are going to be called like the the magic lantern, Hmm. which you can project images on a wall or something, and that can tell a story. Also, you're going to get what's called an arcade, and an arcade is originally a building type, but by the early 20th century, these are things that uh, lots of people, especially immigrants, break into business this way, is that you set up a bunch of kind of novel, almost like a permanent carnival atmosphere inside a building, and there are kind of strange things you can see and strange people you can see, sort of a standing circus that is going to be the basis for what's called the Nickelodeon. So (laughs) you could get into an arcade for one cent. A Nickelodeon is a neologism coined to cover the fact that now you could look at moving pictures. So why should I pay five cents a nickel to look at moving pictures? Well, at first people don't really see that this matters. So Zucker, for instance, builds a giant uh, crystal staircase in his one of his Lower East Side locations. And people are basically paying the nickel so that they can see the staircase. Hmm. But that's the idea. Um, the same idea will be used later once feature film is established in what's called the movie palace. That is, people have these kind of miserable lives, especially in urban areas. It's dirty. You work a lot. There's not a lot of relief. There's not a lot of greenery. Why not relieve your life by putting you inside a palace sometimes when you go to the movies? So when you go to the Nickelodeon, you're going to see at first these kind of incidents that I mentioned, but Zucker is really the, he's really the guy among all the founding fathers of Hollywood, Carl Lemley, um, Louis B. Mayer, the Warner brothers. He's really the one that understands this could be something bigger. This could be a serious thing. This could be an hour and a half, right? He's really the father of the idea, not of the production, but of the idea of the feature film. And so he begins to stage plays and film them. And it looks awful at first, but it begins to convince people that this is a serious art form an actor would want to participate in prior to which you really just have amateurs kind of standing in front of a camera for a while. What strikes out to me out of all that is just the need to escape the misery because that hasn't changed. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Which I think people talk about in terms of, oh, you know, movies were big in the depression and Gone with the Wind was big. And these Disney movies were big because people were trying to escape. People have always been trying to escape. (laughs) And uh, that's what the medium was for. And Zucker understood that. And so that has to do with something that I think is key to understanding this history, which is a lot of the founding fathers, all the founding fathers of Hollywood, except for Jesse Lasky, uh, who put took over Paramount with Zucker. Paramount was not founded by uh, Zucker and Lasky, but they took it over and made it what it was. Everyone else besides Lasky is born overseas. They're all immigrants. <laughs> and for a lot of them, their desire to come to the United States whether they were born in Hungary, as Zucker was, or uh, some are born in the Pale of Settlement, which is recorded as Russia, but today it's like the Ukraine and Poland. They're reading dime novels about America. And America is to them this amazing place. And so if they come here, then they're going to make it and they're going to be successful like Horatio Alger or other characters of these dime novels. So there is a fiction And this is something you can also see in the history of science fiction. There is a fiction that turns into reality. 
because the guy wants to succeed in America and he comes here and then eventually he does. Now, it's not a straight shot in most cases. I mean, some of these guys do all kinds of things. So if you can imagine it, future Hollywood moguls are doing things like shocking weed on farms in North Dakota, or Zucker breaks into the fur business, kind of hawking furs door to door in the Midwest. So there's, a, there's an enormous amount of work, but Hollywood is not invented by people who are unacquainted with the power of fiction. It's, it's invented by people who really have kind of, and this is something that Gabler is really attentive to, and I'll put the book in the show notes, is how, what power fiction can hold over your mind. I mean, these are guys who in many ways become as non-Jewish as they can possibly be because they see it as incompatible with being American and, and being American means being successful. Now like by, for a very, yeah, go ahead. Like just like by, de- by definition, it means to come here and have your wildest dreams come true. And to have, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It means to come here and to just have things. And there's often a, a horrible story of poverty and sadness. Very often for almost all the founding fathers of Hollywood, there is an absent father or an ineffectual father. Uh, their mothers are much more important to them than their fathers, generally speaking. But what they're going to do and, and, the, and the reasons they're going to do it is because they have already reinvented themselves once in coming to the United States. And the one who hadn't reinvented himself, Jesse Lasky, is kind of famously lacking in any Jewish characteristics, according to himself and all of the other Jews. So the experience of being American is an experience of losing yourself in America. Now, that will involve something that then gets literally projected which is their understanding, because it's not just the owners, it's the producers and the directors and the screenwriters in early Hollywood who are overwhelmingly Jewish and who, to a large degree, continue to be down to today. They are going to project America back to America. Like literally, that, which is yeah, fun. Literally. The, the projection. Literally. The question I have, yeah. I, I want to want you to keep going, but Go the ahead. question I have is when we, talk, when we call them Jewish, what yeah. do we mean by that at this point? Because that word is bland. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a big difference. So if you read a book written by a Jew about Jews, this is a really big difference than what I find people who are neither Jewish nor have much personal acquaintance with Jewish people who tend to think of being Jewish as a religious question, kind mm-hmm. of like being Lutheran or being Baha'i. Jews, when they're talking about other Jews, are generally speaking ethnically in the same sense that, you know, I would say I'm, uh, you know, of English descent, right? And so, they, they don't really mean a specific amount of religious practice because especially in this first generation, some of these guys grow up in relatively secular families. Others like Adolf Zucker don't, but so they're understanding Judaism or being Jewish in this sense is, is a mixture of ethnicity, culture, and religion. That is the religion could disappear, but the ethnicity and the culture don't necessarily Unless when you come to America, you want them to. Well, and so it sounds a little bit like they go through the very thing we've been talking about with regard to the average white person uh, in America, uh, a a loss of cultural identity in the amalgam of what could be. Uh, and yet they are going to then take that yeah. and build something with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think I think that this is one of the marvelous ironies of this whole history is that there are phrases, uh, actually all of them coined by Jewish people about America, like a nation of immigrants or a melting pot that 
are not really, if you look at the history, and I think I've talked about this before, they're not literally true. We didn't melt. And the toss salad metaphor that came in after the melting pot, we kind of realized that wasn't good or, or true or whatever. The toss salad metaphor doesn't even quite match either because there are plenty of people in the United States that have no practical acquaintance at any time in their lives of Jewish people, for example. Okay. So if we are a toss salad, we're a bunch of different toss salads because we don't, not everyone knows Norwegians or Jews or a lot of other ethnic groups because we're not even all equally dispersed across the, across the United States. So what, what that, what you do see though, is that we have gone from one situation to another and the insider has become the outsider. So when the founding fathers of Hollywood come to the United States, they understand themselves as complete outsiders, aliens. It's, a, it's an overwhelmingly Protestant Christian country. Okay, so they come here and they're going to efface large portions of that. So many of them will be, try to become very, very American. And something that you get in early Hollywood is the recreation of all of these social and cultural trappings of the Eastern elites to which those immigrant Jews could not have belonged because they weren't Episcopalians or Presbyterians. So you get a country club, you get a ball, you get a debutante ball, you get a social season, you get certain athletic events attuned to those things. Uh, one of them being the Rose Bowl. Okay. And those are things that are staged events and they will recreate also the homes that they will build in and around Los Angeles will recreate a certain way of life that never was theirs exactly until they got wealthy from the movies. And then they couldn't quite belong to that other society because they were far away and they moved for a variety of reasons we can talk about later to California from largely New York. But they ended up kind of creating their own version of that, but it was a version that was ethnically and to some degree religiously Jewish in the way that the Northeastern and to some extent Midwestern establishment was ethnically Anglo-Saxon. That's kind of your, your core population group at the founding of the United States. And then Protestant in religion, largely Episcopalian, but maybe Presbyterian too. So the outsider apes the insider in that way. And there is a notable thing if you look at really any Hollywood movie prior to roughly the late 1930s, but especially after World War II, there are almost no people on screen who are not visibly Anglo-Saxon in looks. And if they don't look, if they look like too Italian or too Jewish or something, you will notice that they, the actor will almost invariably have changed his name. So if his name is, you know, Theodore, you know, Bernstein, he's going to be, you know, Frank Burns, Right. And so those name changes are name changes that are that they feel are necessary in order to kind of meld into something. What I think is fascinating now is that if I consume enough media, whether from Hollywood or anywhere else, I will feel alienated, <laughs> even in my own family, because my media consumption habits will make me drastically different from the people that I sit at you know, the dinner table with, maybe if I still do we'll all be so alienated from each other. We're, it's like, we're all outsiders, hmm. right? <laughs> we're all outsiders. So these guys were leaving a certain culture, whether back in their homeland or, you know, to some degree here, even when they're recreating it, they're kind of recreating it in an image of this country. At this point, to, to be in this country is to be an outsider to one's own self. 
let alone one's parents, one's ancestors, all that sort of thing. So that dislocation, that, that immigrant experience is one that really isn't historically everybody's in America. There are people who have been here for hundreds of years. They had different cultures, not just even a single homogenous one. But at this point, largely, I think, by virtue of consumption of culture produced out of Hollywood, we're, it's like we're all first-generation immigrants trying to figure out what language to speak and how to be and what to wear and what to do and how to sing. And all of that is up for grabs in a way that historically it wasn't, except for people that were completely new. It was. It seems to me uh, important here then is, so they grab onto one particular culture that they, what, lust after, covet, see as elite, see as something to desire, mm-hmm. and they present that and effectively it becomes the only culture that is and right. much of what we're dealing with in the whole collapse narrative we've been talking about is that proving itself to be untrue uh that 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 monolithic image of america that led all the way up through reagan 80s right uh, yeah. and it, it 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 wasn't real um i don't know i don't know quite where to go with that other than that uh it's come up in my head a couple times now as you've been talking there's an old I think it's Dateline documentary uh, called The Merchants of Cool. And it largely follows the rise of MTV and mm-hmm. MTV's approach to marketing just America back mm-hmm. to America. But they always kind of market a certain extreme edge of America back to America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what happens is over time, America gets more extreme. And then right. what that requires is you got to go out and find an even more extreme kid or musician or whatever to top the last thing that you did. And so um, in my part, this just seems like the early, early era of that, uh, you know, MTV is not quite Hollywood in the movies, but, but yeah. it is, it is the mass produced media that is showing us who we're supposed to be, which is not who we were. And as you really pointed out, well, at a certain point, dividing the family so that yeah we all grew up in this house together but we all watch different stuff and now you know one person's this one person's that and and we're all going to split and go our ways that's Uh, right yeah yeah Yeah. and and it that was always the case with movies so i mean as early as 1906 there are complaints about movies that they make people passive and dull and (laughs) that's when movies are you know a couple of minutes maybe the consumers, the earliest consumers of movies are, are mostly women and children because opportunity to go into these arcades and Nickelodeons is kind of a daytime thing, uh, largely. It's, it's not when most men are going to have leisure time. That's going to change as movie theaters expand across the country. And the, birth, the, the growth of movie theaters, especially linked to different Hollywood studios, so that uh, you'll get kind of a top to bottom production system all the way from where do you get film to shooting film to producing movies to distributing movies will be controlled by a variety of kind of you might think of them as silos so they cover the whole process from top to bottom and that will issue in theaters and those theaters are now going to be available to almost anybody relatively cheaply so the business model always involves a relatively small cost being borne by the consumer, that doesn't mean that the cost is small, let's say spiritually, of seeing a movie and that changes how you think about marriage or what a woman should look like, right? So fashion can change more rapidly and they recognize that quickly, partly because a lot of the men that 
uh, start Hollywood were in the garment business before then. So they, they're attuned to, you know, how do we change taste? Well, we can change taste if we show you different looking kinds of people, like women with short hair, for example. Right. In drink your Ovaltine, kids. Drink your Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So those, those changes are going to be available by virtue of the power of this medium, which I think these guys are very wise to latch onto. Now, th- there's always been, and there remains, I suppose, but uh, much less than it used to be, pushback against this. So there are, there are plenty of churches or even entire denominations that are going to say watching movies is sinful. And that sounds really simplistic to us, but I think there's an insight there. Okay, even if you don't want to say that looking at every single moving image is sinful ever, but the basic idea is that this is at best frivolous. And if it's frivolous, it's actually hurting you. There were similar discussions about novels in the 19th century by churchmen. Uh, The ones that don't just flat out say it's sinful are going to recognize that the fair on offer, especially prior to a big fight in the middle of the 1930s about whether or not there's any moral code for releasing a Hollywood movie, what's called the pre-code era, you will find things that you would be shocked that your great grandparents would have, you know, this is what was on offer to them in mass culture. If you compare it to even what was kind of on screens in say the 1980s, the 1930s, the early 1930s were in their own way more kind of sexually explicit and violent than the 1980s. Now that's not true anymore. We're kind of back to and beyond the the pre-code era in Hollywood, but it is shocking to see how kind of violent and openly sexy and salacious, let's just say, uh, Hollywood was. So there is a mismatch, I would say, largely between Hollywood's sense of what America is and then America's own sense of what it will put up with. And so this will be a tug of war for a long time. I think that at this point, the idea that that is a common mass culture that I need to react to, you're right, that's gone. Like I never get upset about Hollywood movies because it's not my culture. Why would I, why would I try to get some movie taken out of a local movie theater? So those, those things will change, but when there is, I would say greater homogeneity or sense of a public in the United States, there is, and will be pushback, especially the organized pushback is going to come from Catholics. And I think that's largely because it's easy for Catholics to get organized. Hmm. <laughs> it's hard for Protestants well, to get there, organized. There's just a lot more of them than I think a lot yeah. of us realize too. They're, they're yeah. big populace. Yeah. And um, they're going to they're gonna be living in urban centers more often than Protestants are and come into contact with these kind of mass-produced forms of culture often before Protestants do. So that's a, that's a factor to consider as well. But I mean, I think that this you know, this mismatch between what Hollywood is trying to do and what people will actually put up with will almost in time always be resolved in favor of what Hollywood wants to do. Right. Well, yeah. That it, yeah. yeah. Retreat on those fronts will be temporary. So there is a code period. And then eventually Hollywood is going to move in the sixties and seventies into basically promising that it will rate itself, which it does. But even if it's assigned an R rating, that doesn't keep people out of the movies. And unlike vaccination status, you know, unless you're like a little kid and the movie theater really cares, 
<laughs> you're not going to get kicked out of an R-rated picture. So those, you know, the, the effective way to regulate the morality of what was presented was to force it on Hollywood. And that is something that Hollywood will always successfully portray as a restriction on free speech, illegitimate suspicion, or kind of your keyword that can shut down discussion, anti-Semitic, which politically is very similar to pietist theologically. It's just you're not allowed to discuss certain things because it is understood as just bad it's just right? mean. to discuss them. Yeah, it's just totally just mean. mean. If, right. you, if you realize it's a brainwashing machine and try to brainwash people with good brainwashing so they have clean heads, you're just you're just mean and you have to let us who have a different <laughs> point of view use right. it. But you can tell us what to do, but only up to a point, And then we'll still tell your kids how you're wrong. And then eventually you have nothing left. I mean, and I don't I don't say that lightly i really do think that the power when i when i said earlier that you know revolutionary the power of this is is far beyond the power of the printing press or the book Uh, it is it is an absolute um spiritual exchange in which uh, you do give up a certain level of your own person in order to absorb what is being entertained uh, what what is being given and whatever you think you are before and after you're unaware of how far it's moved you. It, yeah. it is simply just not possible for the human being yeah. as constituted to be aware of, of how, how powerful this is. Um, and that's where then when those, <laughs> I don't know if this quite connects, but you know, the idea that it's a sin, it, se- it seems novel, doesn't it now? Uh, it's, it seems <laughs> kind of funny a little bit. And yeah, part of that's because right. the word sin has been taken out of uh, conversation. It's one of those things you're not allowed to say, like pietism and, and you know, be- being anti-Semitic. Uh, if you say something sinful, now you've just kind of taken yourself out of the conversation as a logical person. But I, I do find it amazing, I really do, that a Protestant country that numbers the Ten Commandments so as to include the, prohibi- the prohibition of, of uh, images as images. one of the commandments of God has no problem with the television and seems to never have had a problem with the television. Uh, it, it, it seems if if they ever had a case to make their case that they're right, which I don't think they are, um, this would be it. Uh, and, and then it has been something for me, again, uh, the last couple of years, my own push against these things is sort of asking – when did bowing before an image become okay? When did this become something I'm I'm okay to do in my own life to just sit here and bow before this image that talks to me for three hours? That that's striking to me, and and I'm not going to say it's a sin to watch Dune, right? We talked about that recently or whatever. Um, you <laughs> right. know, although although uh, I've I've heard uh, very mixed reviews now since since our conversation, but um, but there is, as you said, there's there's a certain wisdom these individuals had when they they kind of foretold the slippery slope of not only this, but, you know, health insurance, birth control. I mean, they, they had a bunch of stuff that they were like, well, you yeah. can't do it at all. And we're like, well, yeah, we can. And now we reap the fruit, you know, what, three generations later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the, the slippery slope, the idea that that's a fallacy uh, is an assertion about whether the slope itself exists and is in fact wet enough that you could slide down. So because movement downward is is easier than standing still on a slope. I think the burden of proof is on the person who's claiming, oh, that's just a slippery slope argument. Because history has so many examples of slippery slopes. It's so, like conspiracy I mean, theory. It's like you you claim that it doesn't exist. Like no, yeah. there's never been a conspiracy. There are no slippery slopes. Are you, right. What kind of, I don't know, what kind of idiot are you? I, I, I mean, I, I think that Slippery slope being a fallacy when you're talking about some kind of evil humans are doing. Slippery slope is only a fallacy 
over a certain limited time period. So for example, in the case of Hollywood, Louis B. Mayer, the founder of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, is a very meticulously attentive father and husband. Okay. He's not Harvey Weinstein. Okay. Will you eventually in a industry that even from its founding relied on the availability of young, naive women from somewhere in the hinterlands of the United States for their on-screen beauties, will you find you know, sexual evils of an unheard of kind in such a place where those women and men with power over them are concentrated? Of course you will. Yeah. You yeah. just need to wait until someone like Louis B. Mayer is dead and then, and even during his lifetime, you will find others who were doing similar things. And there were, there were sex scandals before there was talking in movies. <laughs> There's the mysterious death of a girl at a party in San Francisco to celebrate. It's basically, it's a rap party where one of our famous silent movie actors, Fatty Arbuckle, Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, is implicated as the murderer. So there have been sex scandals in and around film since before. Uh, we were hearing the voices of the actors. So slippery slope fallacy relies on your, your seeing, oh, well, this one guy in this limited case didn't do this thing that I'm saying, basically they're all doing. Therefore, the slippery slope doesn't exist. This isn't going to happen. It's not that bad. you know. And that, that relies again on your remaining kind of a child as yeah. to your knowledge, yeah. not knowing enough to see patterns, not knowing enough to see how things have in fact played out and believing in the innocence of man contra all human history. And right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's an element of American exceptionalism in yeah, a lot of it. people's understanding of Hollywood that, you know, it's different here. And whereas show business was always at least faintly reprehensible, if not outright banned <laughs> in polite society, the idea that your, you know, your son or daughter would become an actress was, uh, you know, I mean, you might as well just say they had uh, multiple children out of wedlock and died doing drugs. Often the idea, same thing. The, the, the idea that that acting was respectable was debatable, at least. But since it has reached the height of eminence. This is what people aspire to. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so the, yeah. one of the Dune conversations I had recently, uh, we were mm -hmm. talking about all the very famous actors that ended up in this movie. I was like, I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, wow, there's, there's a lot of famous actors. And, and halfway through the conversation, I was like, you know what? I'm done calling them actors. Uh, I said, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, he's a great pretender. Oh, yeah, that guy's a really great pretender. It completely changed the tenor of the whole conversation. And, and I really think it's worth, again, whoever you are, wherever you are, to call a thing what it is and realize that someone who is put on an act, they, they're pretending to be something other than they are and to aspire to that. That's the issue that there yeah. would be nothing more I'd want out of my life than to pretend to be other people. Right. There's something again, very unnatural about this. Right. But I mean, there is a way in which the, the pretender much like the watcher that we talked about regarding surveillance, the pretender puts himself inside of you. So I think about this with accents because, you know, Zucker, Mayer, Irving Thalberg, these are all people that are raised uh, not speaking English, either overseas or sometimes, you know, in the United States, maybe speaking Yiddish or something. And some of them erase that almost entirely. Others of them never erase their, their foreign accent on their English entirely. Some of them, it's very thick. Their children 
are carefully educated not to speak like their parents. Now, <laughs> what Hollywood has accomplished through the TV, through phones now, but originally through uh, motion pictures, uh, strictly speaking, is to give you a different way of talking, probably than your parents, but definitely than your grandparents. Hmm. So this is something where you now are a stranger to previous generations who use different words for things, maybe because they didn't live in a city or in suburbs, they lived somewhere that you need words for particular natural phenomena. Uh, you know, in the Thanksgiving show, one of the things I read was William Barnes and Barnes is adamant about how city people don't hardly know any words for anything because there are things that we need words for, like the particular quality of ice in a slush puddle in February that traditional dialects have that just disappear when that landscape and the people that occupy it disappear. So words disappear. Both sets of my grandparents called things, things that my parents did not, but we at least remember that the word existed. But the TV and the screen give you a different accent, even on the words that you do have in common. Probably, you're probably talking faster mm -hmm. than your grandparents did. You're probably talking in ways that are more abrasive because you learned them from the box and not from conversation. So those are all things where we have been made strange by an industry that was founded by people who really were strangers. And I don't think they were necessarily all of them trying to like do this, right? But it happened that, that a certain technology in human hands has a power even beyond what its creators understand. Yeah, yeah. So the medium always will mold the message right. even if it isn't so you the message. Can go, I mean you can go to I mean you can go to Alabama and probably talk to somebody who sounds exactly like I do. Especially in the because, city. Because because I approximate the box more mm -hmm. than his grandparents did. So by now through the box he has begun to talk somewhat more like me than like his own grandparents. Somewhere I thought we we're going to go in this a little bit more was some like occult horror story kind of stuff. So um, I'm a little surprised at the very tame nature of a couple of what uh, clothing salesmen and former wheat threshers just deciding to get together <laughs> and make some film change the world. Yeah, well, I think that when you think about Hollywood being a cult and there are certainly reports today and I'm going to get into this more next week in talking about Stanley Kubrick. I'm going to use him kind of the way that we use David Lynch because Kubrick is convinced that the occult is at the heart of our regime. And I, I do agree with that. I don't, however, think that it is necessarily there from the first. And I don't mean that in some kind of naive way or simply because I'm, you know, more patriotic than some of the listeners. I mean that because I think that one of the things to understand about the history of film is the nature of unintended consequence. And that one of the things that Kubrick likes to show in his films is that you can, you can get past something or you can efface something, or you can not even know that it is there as Bill does not know about the world that is underneath Christmas around him lived by the elites in his own city and eyes wide shut. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have power. Right. And so you can say, okay, well, I like to watch old, you know, screwball comedies from Hollywood and the most, you know, evil thing that they're doing is they're, they're making me talk faster than I otherwise would in say 1948. They're very innocent, very harmless. Many of them. I like to watch the sound of music. I like this movie or that movie. 
that's all true. I think this is why I think that conspiracy exists or large plans exist in human minds for a short time period. It is very hard for them to exist over multiple generations. To that can really only be attributed supernatural malice. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to, you know, prove that uh, Jesse Lasky at the Film Players Company uh, was trying to turn America into a place full of purple-haired, non-binary, constantly enraged and obese people addicted to the screen. He, he didn't have to intend that. He didn't have to know that any of that was going to happen, but he helped to further it along. One of the stories that Neil Gabler likes to tell in An Empire of Their Own is basically a story of ethnic conflict. That is that the smart, fast immigrant Jews replaced the genteel, slow wasps who started the film industry and to whose cultural standards, at least the first generation wanted to acclimate. If you look at it that way as a story of ethnic conflict, I think that you are going to fail to understand a lot of things, partly because most of the guys in the first generation are not even particularly religious human beings. If they have vices, they are almost entirely materialistic. The unintended consequence here is that through what they began to project and what has been projected since then, we have all become not particularly religious, devoted to pleasure, materialists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So in the same way that we have lost our accents, like they had to lose their accents, in the same way that we have been alienated from our fathers, the way they were alienated, often by immigration, sometimes by death, we also have become the materialists that many of them were. And many of their successors have therefore convinced us that America is nothing really more than a big shopping mall, which is a very outsider materialistic perspective on a place people already lived before the film industry came to be. So I think that that alienation in the same way that when you're watching the film, you are alienated from your own moods and even your own body and you are feeling the moods and maybe even feeling what is happening to the bodies on the screen, the film and the industry and the things that it creates in us, not just worldview or dogmas, but moods, senses of things, intrinsic reactions, almost kind oh. of, you know, lizard brain level instincts. Yeah. Those are all things that no one really had to intend. I think they're simply things that some of us began to harness and then to use with great power on others. But I, I, will, I will say this in favor of them, and this is why I don't need an occult explanation for everything that happened, even though there, there were occult things in Hollywood, and maybe we'll talk about those in the coming weeks. The founding fathers of Hollywood let their own children not only watch movies, but work in Hollywood. Notice how... <laughs> The moguls of today, largely tech moguls, don't use, much less give to their children, the technology they themselves foist on us. So there was something dark, certainly, but there was also something a little brighter and a little more innocent in early Hollywood than we have today. Yeah, naive, at least. Naive. Yes. And again, yeah. so going back to the, the comment that film is revolutionary, just completely unaware of the power that they were working right. with, even as they saw, oh, this can give me this, that can get us that, it can create the good that I want, not aware of the long-term ramifications of it. So to kind of, I mean, this is a little bit of a crass metaphor, but 
it doesn't really matter if you intended to get everyone addicted on opium. Once they're addicted on opium, it, it's going to do what it's going to do. Right. And, yeah. and this is something that I would say is uh, more impactful than opium. As you said, it, it impacts the mood and the worldview. Uh, and then over time, we have figured out how to harness it. Uh, they have they, they know what they're doing now. Uh, yeah. They know that yeah. this can move nations. And right. they're very intentionally doing that. Right. Yeah. And that's where, you know, not really seeing news media and entertainment media as distinct is very helpful because, you know, you can see a few, you know, you followed, okay, well, what image from the Rittenhouse case was released when? Well, there's a reason that they, that certain images were seen earlier and other images were not released until absolutely forced to be released because images are extremely powerful. And this is something that to go back to, you know, your, your question or your wonderment earlier, I think that a largely Protestant nation and, you know, Lutherans are actually historically an exception to this, although grouped as Protestants for other reasons, but a nation that doesn't really have particular religious images is unusually susceptible, I think, to images because it's not like our sense of sight was created solely for the purpose of evil. It is there to be filled. But when it is filled with impossible dreams or a sense that, you know, if only I cut my hair and moved to New York, I'd be happy or whatever other things are, are given. There is there are no countervailing images that fill the eyes and through the eyes, the mind, right? I mean, the eye has particular power. That's why, if the, if the light, which is in you is darkness, right? If your eye offends you, right? So the eye has this particular power. And when the eye is full of certain kinds of images, whether they're generated from my memory of life or they're before my eyes presently, like I'm seeing outside and the wind is blowing and the trees are red and, and green and gold. Those images are powerful for this time of year. For me, for example, if I lived somewhere that there were only palm trees, I would feel an incredible sense of alienation because all my memories of this time of year involve fall and things falling down. And that is my mind's eye playing over again. So if my mind's eye can then be occupied by a medium that looks like my mind's eye, that can do things that almost nothing else can do. And if I just start thinking of everything as images rather than, oh, I'm watching the news or I'm watching a movie or I'm watching a documentary, I just think of it all as images moving through, then they're trying to give me surrogate lives. And that's how I can get so, as I've talked about, alienated. Because it's like I'm living someone else's life and suddenly my life doesn't even really exist. It's just yeah. someone else's. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. One of the things I've been trying to press on my kids recently is you know, when they say, I've in, and this goes for not just movies, but uh, pictures as well. You know, I, I've seen the Eiffel Tower. No, you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> no, you haven't. You've seen the illusion of the Eiffel Tower. You, you've seen a manifestation of it. You've seen some form of projection of it. Yeah. But you've not actually seen it. And it, I'm just watching as a concept. That, you know, I just want to watch. It, it. I'm not dead set against these things existing. I don't think. Maybe I am. But but before I would get there, uh, it's it's being bothered by how how many and how radically. People say, I'm just watching yeah. as if right. that is anything at all. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that, that confusion is so natural. I mean, it's the confusion between the image and the reality is so natural. I mean, we've had numerous church councils and ongoing disputes about the nature of permissible imagery, even in churches that don't ban it. And the reason we do is because everyone wants to conflate. If I saw it, it feels like reality. The thing is, I can't really, if I confuse those two things, then I have, you know, even in the case of an icon, I have collapsed heaven and earth. I'm saying that there is no distinction anymore between the image and the reality. There's no distinction between the picture I'm seeing and the loved one that I miss, right? They're just, that they're all there. And so that, that's also how I think you can see images come to be haunting. Mm-hmm. And there is something, especially in Hollywood's own movies about itself. And we talked about Mulholland Drive, but an earlier movie, and I'm going to skip over it to talk about kind of what happened after the code collapsed. And then we'll talk about Kubrick next time. But in its own movies about itself, it will often talk about itself as an industry, as a way of living for the people inside of it, as haunting or ghostly. And that is an enormous admission of a certain reality for everyone involved, okay, of whatever ethnicity, whatever background, whatever accent, that this is the kind of thing that turns into a ghost, right? And the idea of ghosts is an idea of presence that is malevolently absent. And its nature is therefore destructive, or at least horribly miserable and sad, right? So you're in, you know, whatever alienated place and you come off the street, you go into the movie palace, you feel like a king for a few moments. Here's your giant bag of popcorn. Here's your giant drink. You're sitting down, you're being entertained like kings were, but you are being haunted by what you're seeing. You are getting ghosts inside your soul by virtue of what you're seeing. And some of that may be wonderful. There are, there are hauntings. I mean, I am haunted by loved ones who are gone, not in some kind of literal you know, scaring me by my bedside sense, but I think of them. I think of them when I'm in church. I think of them at other times. I think of them at this time of year on the day that they died, you know, they are with me. Why would I, if I have so much fullness of life, why would I invite other people into my soul in that way? But that's, that's the power that film has. And I think that's why Kubrick, who I'll talk about next time is always making sort of like David Lynch is always making movies also about the power of movies, mm-hmm. because that is something that if you've stopped and thought for five seconds about it, that that is itself haunting how powerful they can be for you because they are in contact with your soul in a way that is so direct uh, that, that print so, you know, usually fails to reach. Do you want to say something about how this is a form of homelessness at a certain point? Yeah, I think that when I talk about alienation, Maybe that's too abstract. If I don't talk the way that even my parents did or think the way that they did, because I was taught to think otherwise, I don't even need public school for any of this. <laughs> I don't need to go to the kid prison to do this because media can accomplish it for me without, without kid prison. If I am cut off from all of that, I'm already homeless, right? I might have a big house. I might have a big entertainment system on which to watch movies, but I'm already homeless in a certain sense. And anything to remedy that will have to be a new making of a home that is a new culture, a new way of life 
that will have to overcome the homelessness that is that is endemic to growing up with movies because your knowledge of things is determined by people who are basically there to to make money you know they're they're not there to sustain you as your grandparents and your parents are so there is a homelessness that i think is endemic to us so it's it's even beyond okay we have all been made almost like some kind of, you know, Eastern European immigrant who doesn't speak English and doesn't know where he's going and doesn't understand why people are doing what they're doing. We've been made homeless. I mean, at least the Eastern European immigrant has an apartment to live in when he starts maybe, but we've been made homeless. Like, where do I, where do I go home? Well, I can go home to movies I've seen before, but I can't go home again because my home was obliterated by progress or, you know, real estate development, or at least figuratively, it was obliterated by the movies I watched. So that homelessness is something that that longing and that ache for something that I don't know, or maybe I never did know, or maybe I'm nostalgic for the town that Jimmy Stewart is in, in It's a Wonderful Life, which people are watching this time of year, which is supposed to be upstate New York. That's Bedford Falls. maybe I never went there. Maybe I've never even been somewhere that it was actually snowy at Christmas. So that homelessness, I think, is something created by imbibing culture. That is things that talk to your soul (laughs) that really were not produced by you or anyone, anyone from where you're from or like you. So maybe to end on a little bit of of hope here too, um, what alternative culture do you imagine? Uh, What are you trying to build in your home? Yeah, I'm trying to build uh, the capacity to to think well, to express ourselves well, to use English, which is our native tongue and our and our inheritance, well, as well as other languages. But but English, um, especially through the study of other languages, there's always a feedback loop between knowing other languages and knowing your own better. As long as you can always return home, if you move away, intellectually or figuratively or literally for too long. You, you, do, you do lose what is native. Um, and there's some thinking that learning no other language will actually enable you to speak your own the best, that those people speak English best who never learned another one. That I can understand. Maybe if your options are limited, that makes sense. But um, I think if you're doing that and consuming movies, uh, that's not true. So in my own home, I'm trying to encourage a capacity for creativity that will enable my children to build on what I have built and also a sense of where they came from. So, you know, I share with Abraham Lincoln kind of a common generic colonial ancestry from all the different regions of the colonies. So we visit places, we learn how people did things. And that's not so that we're all going to make our own butter all the time or something, but it's so that they don't feel like strangers to their own ancestors that they got here for, for and by specific people who need to be honored uh, for who they were, not not because they were wonderful or something, all of them, all of the time, but because they existed and and their existence is the reason that we exist. So that kind of connection to the past, not as just a source of facts, but the spring that has given rise to the stream that we are, that's what I try to give my children. Hmm. Do you have anything to say for someone who, who can't find that uh, <laughs> familial history? Yeah. And I mean, if you don't have it, I mean, even if you do have it, there's a, <laughs> there's a character in a Booth Tarkington novel uh, about a, a town that's growing too fast. I think it's supposed to represent Indianapolis. Um, Booth Tarkington was from Indiana, but the character is always uh, tracing his genealogy and remembering his ancestors, but himself never gets anything done and his house is falling apart and he's deep in debt. 
So even if you have a bunch of heritage, and if you don't, it is incumbent upon you to give something that is also spiritually and culturally to your children, in addition to, you know, helping them get a good job and all the stuff that people in modern America kind of normally worry about that, even if you have nothing, you know, you still need to give something, even if it's only spiritual, like lessons, a sense of what is important in life, a sense of what you invest in, which doesn't have so much to do with how much genealogy you've done as do you sit down at the dinner table? Is that something that you make central? Those are things that regardless of how much you know about where you came from, you can do. And those are things that I think are, are infinitely uh, worthwhile doing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few thoughts here for me at the end, and they, they may be jumbled again. I did fall on my head like right before this episode. So, um, <laughs> But the, the idea of haunting is, is pretty potent. Uh, whether or not you take it as metaphorical or as being some, you know, deeper thing than that. Yeah. Um, there is no question that as a, as a society, we are haunted by the stories that are being beamed to us, uh, that they manipulate us. They chase us. They, they will not let us rest yeah. and, uh, and that we're addicted to them. And so no matter how you want to fight that, uh, you got to recognize you're in a fight, uh, with that also, in the last year, uh, as I have increasingly tried to fast from these things and experiment with what it means to be an analog living person and all this kind of stuff, uh, mm -hmm. gradually we've also pulled back on a lot of this from, from my kids. We took away the devices. We stopped watching movies. And what we found initially was a great deal of uh discontent and, and suffering. And, and this was, you know, how, Oh no, you know, life is changing again. Yeah. Nah, nah, nah. And then, I mean, it only was a couple of months. Uh, and suddenly at least my, my, my oldest began to, to notice things, uh, about, about other people. And I, one of them wanted to go see black widow with some friends, the Marvel movie that came out and, and she went and she said, you know, it's an okay movie. But before she went, I, I told her, I said, okay, you, I'm going to let you go. I'm not really excited about it, but you know, you got to explore it on your own. Here's what I want you to do though. Like a couple of times in the movie, I want you to take yourself out of the movie and I want you to spend five minutes looking at everybody else. And she came back and said, how was it? She said, that was weird. That was just weird. And then more recently now, again, she's begun to be the most vocal one about how great it is to have time to explore and to create and to do. And, yeah. uh, you know, paint has been one of the major things she's been into just to explore various mediums of paint. Um, and then. With it also as a family, I've intentionally put us into uh, combat training uh, as a group uh, all together uh, for the sake of largely figuring out who they are. Uh, there is something about being on the mat that, that makes you know your body, but also it, it has shown them how much alike they are to each other. And so without, <laughs> yeah, yeah, without the That's kind great. of strong familial history and ties to generations foregone, they can see how they're not everybody else. And yeah, they can right. see what unites them. And uh, so that that all gets back to, I think, what you advocated way early in, in looking to what's naturally around you as the mm -hmm. thing that's real. And yeah. 
all I can do again is advocate that even if you don't have all the tools, um, pull back and, and see who you are with each other and, and give it the time the withdrawal is going to come, the struggle is going to come. But, uh, what emerges is, is a far more substantial thing. It, it, we're not haunted by it, (laughs) you know, Uh, we might suffer, but we're not haunted by it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, oh, that, that's great because I, I think also that like the idea that you're haunted by your parents, like, yes. Okay. Sure. But you got that from Hollywood too and blaming things on that. And it's like, yes, there, there is because of original sin, your inheritance of your own sin and the difficulties in your life is to a great degree from your parents directly. Also your life, you know, so Luther's kind of joking about this, but he says, you know, if we didn't have mother and father, we would, we would have to set up wood and stone and honor them as such. And the reason he does is that um, there is a position of humility relative to your ancestors that is extremely fruitful, um, not because they were sinless, but because they existed. And that is, that's the basis. I think we've talked about it this way before. That is the basis of patriotism. It's, it's not a love for everything that's ever happened. It's a love for existence and, and a thankfulness for existence that is really basic to being human. And it's really hard to have that when you have been in every kind of way alienated from those who were your forebearers. One of the things you said again that struck me months ago now, it being thankful for your forebears simply for surviving and having been the modern fragile person that I've been. I was like, what? That's weird. I mean, why wouldn't they survive? And, and you know, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, right, but, yeah. but now it's really struck me quite a bit more. And again, yeah. um, that's what I'm finding. I'm able to press into my kids uh, is the hunger to survive. Yeah. The, the belief that we can, the belief that we should, the belief that it's not going to be easy. It never yeah. is. Um, but that there's a, there's a reason to, and it's actually two and three and four generations down, down from now. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, exactly. You're listening to a brief history of power. You weren't to find us or you would not be here. <laughs> 